Did you know that in our bulletin, every week, and it's been this way for years, we have a paragraph on the back section that shows or describes the major doctrinal distinctives of our church. Right under the order of worship. I don't know if you've noticed that. Sometimes that fine print, you just kind of eyes brush right over it. Now, these teachings are not unique to our congregation, but they have in time, I think, accurately shown our theological commitments, not only as Baptists, but as those that have come from the Protestant tradition. Now, these doctrines, as I mentioned earlier, have become known in time as the five sole, or the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And that comes to us from the theological Latin. Again, they are sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratis, sola uh, Christus, soli deo gloria. In English, that translates to Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. And so when it comes to matters of salvation, we believe that the Bible alone reveals to us by God's grace, through faith alone, given through Christ alone, that brings us sinners into the family of the triune God to His glory alone. And matters of salvation, that is what we believe as a church. And I think that's important for us to understand because it centers our relationship with God around His divine grace and His action for us. It centers us around what God does and who God is and not about anything we have done are doing, or ever could do. It puts God in the frame, the center of the frame, and it helps us understand who we are in Him. So, I bring all this up because on Halloween, in just a little over a week, this will mark the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther, who was the erstwhile Augustinian monk, nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, unwittingly starting a renewal movement, as Timothy George called it, within the church of Jesus Christ. It was the eve of All Saints Day, which was a Christian holiday that many Christians in the world still celebrate, where they thank God for the work that He has done, not just in the lives of the bishops and the theologians, but in the lives of ordinary believers throughout all the centuries, a great cloud of witnesses as we read in the book of Hebrews. It is on that day that Luther saw it appropriate to advocate for regular Christians like us. And so for these next five weeks, we're going to be, um, and with next Sunday being Reformation Sunday itself, we're going to be meditating on these great truths, these great beliefs of the Protestant Reformation. But they're greater than that in a way. We we hold them as distinctives of our particular branch of Christianity, but what we see in them are amazing truths, amazing, scandalous truths of the good news of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so today we're going to focus starting off on the doctrine of Scripture in brief. Now that is almost an impossible task to do in one sermon and not go on for two and a half hours. It will not be that long, let me assure you of that. So what we will touch on here will be a um, a sketch of what we can say about Scripture. Just a brief word about it. 
and this doctrine of sola scriptura, the teaching that Scripture must be esteemed above all, even our religious rituals. Now everything that we believe and everything we do as Christians, we believe must be held up against what God reveals to us in His written Word. This is the ultimate source of authority for us. It is no pastor or bishop or pope. It is no tradition or ritual or rite. It is Scripture itself. This is where we um, derive the ultimate truth from. As one theologian said, it is the norming norm of theology. It is the rule of faith for us. The Bible is where we go to to center ourselves on what it is we believe. And so, all our church traditions, all our ecumenical creeds, all our congregational teaching, and those things are good, but they are subservient and must adhere to God's revelation of Himself and His teachings in Scripture. So there are Christians in the world that would say tradition, what we've just done in time, and what our our leaders have taught us is on par with Scripture. We reject that line of thinking. Tradition can be good. We every uh, every year we have beautiful Christmas celebrations, Easter celebrations. These are not prescribed to us in the Bible itself. We don't get um, uh, we don't get a, a, a manual of how to celebrate Christ's birth and His resurrection. We don't get that in the New Testament. So, but we see these as good traditions because they focus us on the story of Jesus, the Gospel for us. That's a good tradition. But all traditions, no matter how good, must again be handmaidens to the Bible itself. The message of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, this is preserved and living for us in the Scriptures alone. And as the Dutch theologian Herman Bovink said, all things necessary for salvation about faith and Christian life are taught in the Bible with sufficient clarity so that the ordinary believer can find it there and understand it. So when it comes to things about our salvation, our faith, our Christian life, it is in the Bible alone that we can read it, ordinary people like us, and have clarity about it. Does that mean all passages of Scripture are going to be equally clear to us? No. Does that mean that all of us are going to know an equal amount about Scripture? No. It just means what is essential to our life and faith can clearly be seen from Scripture. You do not need a great counsel to tell you what you need to believe. You don't have to check off these boxes so that you may be saved when it comes to uh, religious rites, participating in activities in the church. You don't need any of that. The Bible tells you exactly what you need for salvation. Now, an important clarification I'd like to make here is that the Bible is not meant to be anything but what it's meant to be. So what I mean by that is that the Bible is not a personalized message from God about to you about who you should marry or where you should go to school or what job you should work at or where you should live 
or anything like that. That is not what the Bible is. It is not meant to be that. And people that make it that way are often sorely disappointed. But that's because the Bible's not meant to be handled in that way. Neither is the Bible a science book. The Bible is not a medical textbook. It's not a philosophy. It's not a political um, document or pamphlet. It's not a law code. It's not mere history. It's not cultural fables. And treating the Bible like it's God's handbook to us individually or to guide us in some particular aspect of life, like science or sociology or whatever, like parenting, marriage, education, finance. It's like opening up a novel and try to read it like a cookbook. That's just not how it's designed to function. That is not what the Bible is for. The Bible does not deny reason or general revelation or scientific understanding. These things go hand. All truth is God's truth, as Augustine said. So these things can go hand in hand. What we learn about from the physical world, the scriptures do not deny to us. But this is simply not the Bible's purpose to teach us these things. To understand how the solar system works, or why reptiles shed their skin, or um, what uh, bacteria is good for us to have in our body, and what bacteria is bad. We don't go to the Bible for that information. Some people try to, and again, they're sorely disappointed. Scripture, however, is meant to instruct us in matters of salvation. That is, that's what its primary purpose is. And matters of election and calling and regeneration and justification and sanctification and glorification. The Bible has all we need to know and more in those matters. But before we get into our scripture passage today, a scripture passage that is about scripture itself, I want to kind of paint a broad historical landscape for us to see why we're even focusing on this. It's easy for us to take the Bible for granted, but if we know a little bit about the history, it's, an, it's a really divine miracle. We have the Scripture in a language that we can understand. And that God speaks to us through it. And I don't want us to take that for granted. Because the church of the 16th century, that is the 1500s, was in deep trouble. After centuries of cultural prominence, the church was the only game in town. It had begun to calcify into just another worldly institution. It was just a platform for political agendas, for warring princes and kings, and rival popes and stuff like that. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a jumping off point for uh, different economic systems and philosophical navel gazing and scholastic pursuits. And in many ways, the church of the 1500s had lost its fervency, its radical countercultural witness. It had become a stagnant repository of just kind of secretive and arcane liturgical knowledge at best. And at worst, it was a breeding ground for religious persecution and oppression. It was an entity with a major identity crisis. And of course, it's unfair to say, I want to clarify too, it's unfair to say that the Catholic Church had no reformers before the Protestants. It certainly did. And then it's had uh, no gospel light or witness after the Protestants. That would be a foolish statement to make. There have always been and will be 
good Christian Catholics, as much as that makes us uncomfortable as Baptists to say. (laughs) But this does not mean we see eye to eye with them when it comes to dogma. In fact, we part ways on very important things, crucial things in the faith. But I want us to remember this. We are not saved according to our works righteousness or our um, church polity or our preferred translation of choice or our favorite set of doctrines. We're not saved by any of that stuff. If a Catholic person gets into heaven and a Baptist person gets into heaven, it is because it is through the mercy of Christ alone that they're there. Not according to anything they do. I want to make that clear. However, we do take great umbrage with especially the medieval church and even the modern uh, Roman Catholic church. We take great umbrage with some of these beliefs because we believe they've pushed us away from the central truths of the Scriptures. So back to the 1500s. It was a time in which only clergy were allowed to handle this book. And it was written in Latin, a language that was not a language of the people. It wasn't the vernacular that people were used to. And so only the educated, only the wealthy could read God's Word and have any semblance of what it means. And they were the only ones allowed to read and interpret and speak on the Holy Scriptures. And moreover, lay people, when they tried to to learn what the the Bible had to say, they were suppressed or arrested. Some of them were even executed just for attempting to read the Bible on their own. That used to be just the, the, the broad context of daily Christian life in the world. If you're an ordinary person, not a priest, trying to read the Bible on your own, you could get killed for it. I would say that's pretty serious corruption in the life of the church. And so we do thank God for our Protestant forebearers, for the Luthers and Calvins of the world, for the Wycliffs and the Cranmers and the Zwinglies and the, and the Simmons and the Bunyans, and our many forgotten brothers and sisters in the faith who laid down on the barbed wire, so to speak, so that we could have easy and ample access to God's revelation of Himself in a language that we could understand for ordinary people like us when we pick up these Scriptures. So that's why it's important that we don't brush over these things. Because anytime we open a Bible, we are unwrapping a gift that was hard won by our brothers and sisters throughout the ages that fought and suffered and resisted and even perished so that we might be able to have a copy of the Bible and read it for ourselves and see God's love and grace for us with our own eyes. It's something that we have in our homes, in our churches, and we have it in plenty supply. We don't even think about it, really. Now, we might be curious, I think, too, to ask, why would they even do this? Because after all, all of us in this room have attempted to read the Bible or try to spend time with it, and, and it's probably the easiest book to find in the world. Anytime you go to a used bookstore, they have a whole section of just one book, and it's the Bible, in as many languages and translations as you can imagine. Most hotels still to this day, if you open up that drawer, 
right next to the there's there's a Bible there. I mean it's it's everywhere. Try I mean you, there's so many Bibles. It's so available. And we have no doubt have in our own homes a dozen or so sitting on the shelf collecting dust and haven't been opened in decades. No doubt about it. I know I do. So why would these people from the past risk it all to give us this puzzling, if not outright baffling book that was so hard for us to read and understand? Why would they put their one mortal life on the line for us all these centuries later that they would never know so that we could read these Scriptures? Well, I think it's because they took the Apostle Paul seriously and our Scripture passage this morning when he said all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God Himself. And it's profitable. All of it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. They took Him seriously when He said that. So the question is now, what does that passage of Scripture mean for us? How do we understand that for our day-to-day life? To have access to God's written Word, no doubt, is a privilege. And it's a privilege that all of us take utterly for granted. But in his second epistle to Timothy, that is his second letter, and and Timothy, remember, is a young pastor in in the booming city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul commends him in this way, in chapter 3, verses 10-11, through 11, he says this, But you have followed my teaching and conduct and purpose and faith, my patience, love, and endurance, along with my persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And so, Paul is talking to Timothy here, and he's talking about the false teachers that are trying to distort and manipulate God's message. And in the middle of that, Paul reminds him that you too have suffered alongside me, Timothy. You have, uh, you have followed along with all these aspects of my ministry, all these persecutions and sufferings because of this thing that I'm about to describe. So, the, the list here that Paul gives us, the apostles' experience would have resonated deeply with the early reformers who were constantly in fear of, of death or persecution uh, for the faith once delivered to the saints against um, the titanic and corrupt religious institutions of the day. Here they were just wanting to be normal, average Christians and they were suffering from so-called Christians for that reason. They too, like Paul, were run out of every town that they came to for their Gospel preaching and teaching. They had nowhere to lay their head. Their non-conformity to a church in error meant that their lives would be cut short. That they would end in tragedy. And yet, like Paul, it was a persecution that they endured for the sake of Jesus. And it was a persecution that the Lord rescued them from and rescued their small gospel movement from destruction so that it may go on and have bear unbelievable fruit in the world. 
But Paul continues with something we don't like to hear in verses 12 and 13. In fact, he says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who seeks to be like Paul and Timothy or the reformers and, and be, uh, to live a pious life where they worship God and, and, and try to purge sin from their life and live graciously and compassionately with other people. Anybody that wants to live a good Christian life will be persecuted. Evil people, sinners that have nothing to do with our faith, will hate you. Imposters will become worse. People that want to plant themselves in the church and to use the church for whatever reason. They want to use the church to get rich. They want to use the church to get votes. Imposters will become worse deceiving and being deceived. That's what Paul guarantees for us in Christian history. That if you want to live a godly life, you'll be persecuted for it. And evildoers and imposters in the faith will deceive and become more deceived themselves. It's not very encouraging <laughs> news that Paul is giving us so far. If you want to belong to Jesus, you can expect to face the same kind of resistance in this world that Jesus Himself faced. In the beginning of John's Gospel, in the very first chapter, He says that this Jesus, who remember, is the Word of God made flesh, who is God's revelation of Himself in a human body, who came into this world to be with and for His covenant people, we read that they didn't even know Him. They didn't, the people to, to whom God gave Himself, covenanted Himself, gave them a land, gave them a temple, gave them priests, gave them kings, they didn't even recognize that God when He was in their midst. They knew Him not. In fact, not only did they not know Him, but they rejected Him. Because He was the light of the world. And they loved the darkness of their hearts and their deeds more than they loved the light of the world. This is describing not just the old ancient family of Israel. This is describing all of humanity. Jesus came into the world ready to be a friend to us all. Ready to save this world. But the world responded to Him as an enemy. And so, it's in John 13 at His last supper with His disciples right before the Romans and the Jews and all people put the Lord of glory to death because He was the light of the world and they were darkness that wanted to snuff Him out. It's in that context that He says to His disciples, you call Me Teacher and Lord and you speak rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. If I come into this world to serve, then you ought to know you'll be serving too. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus told us from the outset to follow Him 
would mean that we are like Him. And He came into the world to love and serve people that hated Him and to be persecuted by them. So we're foolish if we think that we can be Christians and not be like our Master and are hated for our love. That are persecuted for our peace. Now, sadly today, there's a lot of Christians in this country that are hated because they're hateful. There's a lot of Christians in this country today that are persecuted because they're pain in the rear. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with little culture wars or political battles. That's not real persecution. Real persecution is loving your enemy and having them spit in your face still. And that, to be a true Christian, when you're firing on all cylinders, spiritually speaking, that is what you can expect. To belong to Jesus means that we are, if we're like Him, if we want to be like Him, that means we'll serve more and that we'll also suffer more. And there's just no way around that. We servants are not greater than our Lord and our Master. Paul suffered. Timothy suffered. The reformers suffered. Ordinary people in the, in the Christian church have suffered because of Jesus. But, here's the consolation that the Apostle offers us instead. Verses 14 and 15. But as for you, he says this to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred Scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The consolation here. Do you hear this, church? Even in your suffering, even in your persecution, even in your hard days, even in the rough patches in your marriage, even in your failures as a parent or a grandparent, even in your bad days at school or work, your financial strains, your medical troubles, your clinical depression, through it all, continue on in what you've learned and firmly believed, Paul says. Paul says to Timothy, know those who taught you. He refers to his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. Even what you learned about God from your days in Sunday school, continue on in that. Even from what you've learned in infancy, Paul says to Timothy. Folks, don't give up on reading the Bible. Don't do it. Don't give up on reading the Bible together as a church. Don't give up on talking about it together. Don't give up on diving into its infinite mysteries together. On committing it to heart and soul together. Parents and grandparents, do not neglect to make it a part of your children and grandchildren's lives, even from infancy. Spouses, don't stop reading the Bible together and praying through it together. Everyone, make the sacred Scriptures central to your life. Why, we ask? They are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Everything you need in this life. Wisdom. Salvation. 
And of course, Jesus, you get those things when you get in this book. In a foolish day and age in which we live, and goodness gracious, is it foolish. And in a day and age of wildly, just unbelievable, intentional campaigns of misinformation become wise in the Scriptures. It's hard for us to always get to the bottom of what is true and real out there. There's so many conflicting reports on the news and social media about important things that we just don't know who or what to believe. We feel like fools trying to chase down the truth. We spend so much of our time trying to get to the bottom of one mystery, and just when we think we've figured it out, then there's another one opening up. And it's a never-ending series of rabbit holes that leads you further and further into madness if you chase them all. In that day and age, of such foolish pursuits become wise in the Scriptures. In our day and age, where there's such anxiety about the future, will this country grow too big and steal away all of our economic benefits? Will we face nuclear winter and destruction? Are we going to be drawn into some new war? Uh, are we going to be faced with some climate disaster? All these things that always stress us out. Find salvation here and now through these Scriptures. So that come whatever, come the disasters, the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the poverty, the plagues, you have salvation. How? Because by God's Spirit, these Scriptures read and believed create faith in you. Not faith in yourself. Not faith in your congregation or your pastor even. It creates faith in Christ Jesus, your Lord. God's Word to us in human form. And here's the hinge upon which our Protestant and more so our Christian faith hangs. Verses 16 and 17. All Scripture. Now in Paul's context, he's talking about the canon of Scripture. What is considered Scripture? And that mainly at this point is the Old Testament. Paul's talking mainly about the Old Testament. But through the providence and faithfulness of God, these letters of Paul and Gospels of the evangelists and writings of other saints have been collected and, and canonized through God's church and His wisdom. And, and so we believe that even the New Testament, of course, is inspired. But Paul is saying all Scripture, Old Testament, and we believe New Testament, from the prophets to the apostles, all of this is breathed out by God Himself throughout the ages. The Bible in all its unbelievable variations and diversity through scores of people written across dozens of lands over multiple continents, various languages, different genres across hundreds of years. All of this Scripture, all of these hundreds of pages we read, in all of its breathtaking diversity is united together by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit giving it to us all. And all of the Bible is profitable. How much, church? Some? A lot? 
Most? No. All Scripture. All of it. Even Hosea. (laughs) For you that are coming on Sunday night. Scripture teaches us of who God is and of course, who we are in Him. It rebukes us, Paul says. It rebukes us of our sins of idolatry against God, of injustices towards one another in thought, word, and speech. It corrects our theologies and our worship of God. And it trains us in righteousness. That, that is, that we would live compassionately and ethically with one another. The Bible isn't for trivia. It isn't for maxims or songs or political agendas or social fables or wild, out-of-this-world, crazy, future conspiracy theories about Nikolai Carpathia or whoever his name was from Left Behind. The Bible is not for these things. It is an active, living, breathing source of God's revelation of Himself to us. And when we encounter the Scriptures, we're not reading just merely historical Words. We're not reading, you know, ancient prophecies. We are reading God's revelation of Himself. And if we read it and encounter it, we cannot help but be changed by it. In verse 17, Paul says that it's important that we read all the scriptures because they rebuke us, they correct us, it trains us in righteousness. And it says, so the man of God, the person of faith may be complete. If a Christian tries to live life without the Bible, they're going to live an incomplete life. An incomplete life of faith, of grace, of God Himself. You can't be a Christian without also being a person of the Word. Scripture is meant to enter us. It is meant to penetrate the most deep recesses of our soul. Even all the years of therapy and psychoanalysis could not unfold and pierce to the center of like Scripture can. It is meant to enter us and change us and to transform how we interact with God and God's world. Paul says it equips us. Scripture equips us for every good work. That means the Bible forms and shapes us into the people of God that He wanted us to be before sin ever entered the world. People that are formed in the image and likeness of His Son made known to us in Jesus Christ. And that we would be like Jesus in this world. If we want to be good Christians and we don't read the Scriptures, we won't be changed like we ought to be into the image of His Son and live and act and move like Jesus did. So is it any wonder, if this is all true, why B.B. Warfield, the great evangelical professor at Princeton in the 1800s, said sola scriptura, the Bible alone, that idea is the cornerstone of universal Protestantism. And on it, Protestantism stands or else it falls. If we don't believe that the the Bible is this living, active movement of God's Spirit in us, 
If we don't believe that, if it's just some religious relic, then our faith begins to crumble. Or is it any wonder that the early Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli said, the foundation of our religion is the written Word, the Scriptures of God. When they were trying to get back to what it meant to be a Christian, we have to get back to knowing what the Bible means. Because in the Bible, we know who God is. And then we can consequently know who we're supposed to be. If we open up this book, if we open this up by ourselves, with our family, with our congregation, and with a humble prayer that God will speak through it, we will find a strange new world will emerge, as Karl Barth, the Swiss Protestant theologian once said. A world where God is active and moving in every aspect of our life and our universe. A world where God overcomes evil by letting evil swallow Him up on the cross of Jesus Christ and yet rises to defeat it again for good. A world where we, although we were just ordinary people, can become extraordinary saints when we join God's family by faith in Jesus Christ. That world that sounds like a fairy tale, that sounds like a utopia to us, where everything is right and God reigns and peace is on earth, that world is open to you to enter right now in these pages. Your journey towards God forever, towards everlasting life, begins in these Scriptures. Let those who have eyes to see and ears to hear attend to these things. And may the Word of God alone dwell in all of us richly. Let's pray. Father, draw us into Your Word and speak to us through it. Speak to us of Christ, Your Son, our Savior. Teach us. Rebuke us. Correct us. Train us in righteousness that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. We thank You for Your Word for us. And it's in the name of the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus, we now pray and ask all these things. Amen.